Hello, I'm Ken Bruce. I appeared as a guest on My Time Capsule, and after that I had to give up a job I'd had for 46 years. <sighs> anyway, they want me to tell you that they've started a thing called Acast Plus, where for a small monthly fee you can get the podcast ad-free. For me, I think the ad's are the best thing in it. That Fenton Stevens, he does drone on a bit. Anyway, whatever you like, do something and have a go at it. ACAS Plus, my time capsule. Thanks, Ken. Charming. Anyway, to get my time capsule ad-free and for a bonus my time capsule, the debrief episode every week, subscribe to ACAS Plus. Details in the description of this episode. Thanks. Bloody Ken Bruce, what a cheek. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. This is the podcast where I ask my guest to reveal the five things from their life that they would like to preserve in a time capsule, four things that they treasure and would like to keep safe, and one thing that they rather regret and would like to bury in the ground and never have to think about again. I'm Michael Fenton Stevens. Yes, six syllables, which is why I've never written a novel. I mean, imagine how long the book signings would take. But my guest in this episode has. She's the actor and writer Sophie Ward. In fact, her debut novel, Love and Other Thought Experiments, published in 2020, was long-listed for the Booker Prize. So, not a bad start. Sophie is probably better known as an actor, something she's been professionally since she was 10. Not totally surprising, as her parents were both actors, and her father, Simon Ward, is particularly famous. Sophie trained as a dancer and actually played one in Roxy Music's video for the hit Avalon. But mostly, she's acted. In over 20 films, including Return to Oz, Young Sherlock Holmes, Little Dorrit, Wuthering Heights, Crime and Punishment, Jane Eyre and The Moonstone. And in loads of television dramas, such as Casanova, Miss Marple, New Tricks, Land Girls, Lewis, Holby City, Heartbeat, The Inspector Lindley Mysteries, A Village Affair, Peak Practice and much more. So let's find out what Sophie Ward chooses to put in her time capsule. Have fun. We're both grandparents now. Isn't it exciting? It's the best thing in the world. I'm, we're a bit obsessed, actually. I don't know about you. How old are yours? Three and two. Three and two. That's perfect. Yeah. The youngest of mine is just about to be four. And I, I really hanker after those tiny children. Yeah. I'm wishing my children would have more children now. Do you think they will? 
I don't think they will, no. Rather like we did, you know, the same thing. We we had two and then we carried on with life. Yeah. And I don't blame them. Yeah. You know, it's hard work having a baby. It is. Not as a grandparent. It's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's the best fun. I've got to this regular times when I bring them up and FaceTime them and then my wife walks in and says, are you talking to the children again, the grandchildren? And I go, yeah. I also do that thing of going, yeah, no, they, they, they rang me. <laughs> <laughs> they do occasionally. My son's oldest one, Freddie, he got rather obsessed with a thing called Imaginators. Oh, with an avatar. That sort of thing, yeah. So it's very exciting. But, of course, during lockdown, I wasn't really seeing him. No. So he would talk to me about these things, and I would go, oh, I think I might have some of those. <laughs> do you, Grandad? You haven't got Spectre, have you? I think I might have him somewhere. <laughs> I'm onto eBay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I am terrible. Oh, Mike. Oh, he must have loved that. My wife said you have absolutely built a rod for your own back. As far as I'm concerned, you can supply anything, anytime they like. Like, I don't care. I don't care. Magic granddad. Thank you for doing this. It's um, it's lovely. Oh, it's a pleasure. My wife, typically, who reads all good literature, has read your book and says how much she enjoyed it. Oh, how lovely. And I, of course, haven't read it. <laughs> but that's really fabulous, isn't it? Yeah, it's been it's been really great. And I was so lucky that it came out. We managed to have a launch just before lockdown. And then, um, of course, book sales did really well in lockdown. Mm. So that's been great. And it also, I had a draft of my next book to work on. So it was a bit less frustrating work-wise. I had something to mm. do and uh, slightly less panicky. So, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been good timing. <laughs> well done. Yes, and I started this podcast about a month before anybody had heard of COVID. So it was, yeah. it's been fabulous. I have to say it's been a great thing to do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there we are. So we should do it. Yes, we'll do it. See where it goes. Absolutely, yes. All right then, Sophie, how lovely to see you and how marvellous to have your My Time Capsule. We're going to talk about five things from your life that you'd like to put into a time capsule to keep safe. There are four things that you love and one thing that you think, oh, no, I wish I could get rid of that. And we will get rid of it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's my promise to you. And if you believe that, you're a monkey's uncle. Okay. <laughs> so what have you chosen for me from your life? Right. Well, I sort of went through um, a little bit chronologically things in life that I found interesting or inspiring or helpful or whatever. Um, mm. So the first thing I chose was something I was reminded of recently because of a phone call that happened, and that is my parents' basement. When I was, I suppose, from sort of naught to nine or ten, my parents had a basement that they used to rent out. And they were very young. My parents were only about 21 when they had me. They were just Ooh. out of drama school and they'd managed to get this house. They didn't really have very much money, but they had this basement that they used to rent out to actor friends. Mm. So when I was growing up, there was always somebody in the basement who I could go and play with. <laughs> and they were really good at indulging me and making dens out of things. Particularly, I remember the the old um, clothes horse hangers, you know, that you could fold yeah. down on the floor and then throw a blanket over. 
And I mean, I was probably quite good and quiet because I'd be in that den for a very long time. I was very happy <laughs> in there. Um, and they had, so Ken Cranham, um, that was the phone call. He phoned my mum recently and remembered those days. And he used to be one of my parents' lodgers for a long time. Uh, and he was very patient. How lovely. Yeah, it was. It was really, it, it was uh, in North London and... Um, I think I was about four when my sister was born, and uh, then she was also a great playmate, and we used to we used to be down there together, and they'd mm. give us snacks, and it led out onto the little garden at the back, so it was the ideal venue, playing venue, really. And I mean, I hope we weren't too annoying. <laughs> <laughs> so this was while these people were doing sort of a play in London or something, or, or film. Yeah, yeah, but they, I mean, they were. It was their base. And Ken and Dad, they did the first London production of Lute, mm. and I think. That was all, you know, it was all quite exciting times. What a career your dad had. Yeah. And I mean, in those days, he was just, you know, they were just starting to get work. They'd been, my parents met at RADA and um, they were just starting out doing bits and pieces of theatre. And then, um, you know, that was a really great play for him to be doing that. And then Mm. um, I think there were a few other things. And then he started to get some telly. Um, I remember one of, what was it called? The Black Tulip which was one of those sort of play for today type things. And uh, I was very little when I watched it and I didn't understand about pre-recording and then that, you know, you'd already, he'd already done it mm. and he was guillotined. Um, but when I watched it, I don't know, my parents weren't very censorious. I was allowed to do, I was quite a feral child, I think. I was allowed to watch and do anything that I felt I wanted to do. And um, so I remember watching this on telly and... Uh, it was a little old black and white TV, but still, Dad had his head chopped off and he wasn't there when I watched it. And I was absolutely beside myself. I, I couldn't I couldn't understand what had happened. It was, I must have, I don't know, maybe I was about six or something. It's probably a bit mm. too young to be watching it. <laughs> Even at Aces High, he did, a, he did that film that was the sort of aerial version of that lovely play, that first World War play that's sort of in the, it's in the trenches, the play, but they did the aerial version was Aces High. And Dad was, uh, I remember Malcolm McDowell was very unkind to him. And, um... That was quite upsetting too. I think we had to leave the cinema. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, he did. He did do some amazing, amazing films and plays, yeah. It's lovely that you remember it so fondly. A lot of children whose parents go through that sort of uh, suddenly being always in demand, everybody wants you and everything. Mm. In a way, they sort of resent the fact that their dad's never there. They're working all the time. Yeah, that's true. But my parents were really good about taking us with them everywhere. I mean, this is probably one of the reasons why their finances were a little bit precarious, <laughs> is that we all would decamp. And um, so we went to Morocco and Dad was doing uh, Young Winston, which was very exciting, and um, lived in Marrakesh for months. And we went around the world with them, really, and they, they would set up little homes for us. And uh I didn't go to school a lot, I must say, which <laughs> is probably why I was still at school, back at school till last year. But um, it always felt like we were part of that life, you know, and it was just mm. sort of every, it did feel like everyday life. It wasn't like glamorous as, as such because it was work, you know. But, mm. of course, looking back, it, look, it, see, it feels very glamorous because of the travelling and, um, and the fact that they were making these amazing movies. But uh, yeah. 
uh, yeah, you know, you were just sort of getting on with like, where was it possible to get sweets from in Marrakesh? You know, <laughs> that was the kind of thing you were preoccupied with as from an other cast members, I should think. Well, yes, yes, a bit of that. Yeah. Or you could always go downstairs to the basement flat. Awake Ken Cranham up. Yes, absolutely. So I think I, I remember those times, yes, really happily and the sort of community, I guess, mm-hmm. of that, um, you know, dinner parties and you should be in bed, but, you know, you could still look out in the garden and your parents were there with their friends and everything. It was it was really lovely. It probably felt very natural to you then to actually do acting yourself, as it were, as a child. You just think, well, it's fine, that's what we do. Yes, yes, it's true. It was, um, you know, and make-believe and my parents were very encouraging of stories and stuff and I was like one of those kids who was always making people come and watch plays and put, you know, make tickets and things and make the neighbours watch. But they did not want me to be an actor. Absolutely not. And uh, I was, I think, lucky. Although I'm not quite know what you think about this, Mike. But um, there was a a local drama school called the Anna Share Theatre in our area, and um, I used to go there. And it was ten pence for an hour and a half. And it was on. It first started off on the local housing estate in the community room, and then there were just these great kids there who had amazing stories. And she was helping them. A, a lot of kids weren't having a great time outside of school and uh, she gave them a safe place to go to and to tell their stories and they were they were naturals and so casting directors started to come along and I happened to be there and my parents were very keen for me not to go up for anything <laughs> but I think they were away once and I managed to get to an audition and uh, anyway yeah I was 10 so then I started working myself I know and regretted it ever (laughs) since (laughs) well yes I was very keen I really was but then of course I've got a son who's an actor now and I and I was the same with him trying to discourage him but I don't know why because I'm very grateful for for being able to have been an actor and I don't Mm. I don't know how how did you do it with your kids Uh, they weren't particularly interested both of them, I think, could have been actors. They're both rather good. They're probably better at it than I am. They can fool me any time. So was that a relief to you that they didn't? No, I didn't know. I'm, I'm very happy with the way they've gone. And in fact, my son and I both work together on this podcast, so we see each other a lot and talk most days. It's really great to be doing a project with your own child. Mm. Well, that is something, because when my son became an actor and I was sort of you know, feeling very protective about it, for, of, you know, not wanting that sort of, lo- the, the the life of rejection, mm. et cetera, et cetera. Then we did a play together and I I realised how wonderful it was to be able to just have that discussion and it was a great gift. And opens up a relationship with your own child on that sort of adult professional relationship that you would never have normally, I think. Absolutely, yeah. That step yeah. of going from your child being your child to your child being an adult Mm. who you treat as you would treat other adults. Yes. Some people never succeed. I'm not sure I've quite navigated that territory (laughs) yet. (laughs) Me neither. So you've worked with your son. Did you work with your dad or your mum? I did a little bit. My mum stopped acting when we were young um, because dad's work was taking over. So she decided that we needed to be with him and keep an eye on him. So, uh, yeah. So that's why we would always be off around the world together. But um, she retrained, actually, as a psychoanalytic psychotherapist. 
and did that very successfully and still does see a few patients actually. But uh, I only worked with dad. We did um, a film version of Wuthering Heights where I was Isabella Linton and he kindly agreed to to come and do a few days playing my dad. Um, And also I was in Heartbeat for a couple of years and he very kindly again came and did a guest episode playing my dad, which was lovely. Oh, lovely. Yeah. Well, all right then. I shall put the basement flat of your parents' house into the time capsule with lots of sheets to put over the clothes horse. Yes. (laughs) Okay, so um, that's your first item. What's next, Sophie? Um, So the next thing is also a place, um, but it could be things. It wasn't so much about the building. It was the library on the Essex Road when I was a child. So it was really about the books um because i mean i don't know how much how it is now it's it's obviously schools have lots of books and things my school didn't have a great deal of books i was at an experimental school in bethnal green um and it didn't have a library or anything but we would go to the library and then that time you could get two books out a week and i remember from going there from very young when it was picture books to you know learning to read and then being on a reading scheme and being able to take those books home and things and um just the the, the absolute joy of going into the children's section and there just being this you know shelves and shelves and shelves of books and whatever you wanted to read and you could read there we you know, you'd spend an hour there or whatever and take the books out and read them and choose the ones you wanted and then this sort of satisfactory thing of bringing them back the next week and exchanging them was was so much pleasure in that. (laughs) So, I I mean, uh, libraries, I think, are, they're back open again now, aren't they? And um, Mm. I know that they're great refuges for lots of people. But I don't know if they are as popular for just the books anymore. I, I think they try and diversify a bit for storytelling and obviously there's access to internet and stuff there now and and newspapers and all sorts but um i mean have you been to the library in birmingham the 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 new one there no i've only seen it from the outside it is a beautiful building isn't it it is yeah so what's it like inside is it amazing it's glorious it's a sort of architectural extravaganza Mm. but you do feel a bit like it's more it's i guess how wonderful a cathedral to books but the books seem to be somewhat maybe moved to the side. <laughs> They're not the main attraction, perhaps. Excuse me, where are the books? <laughs> yes. They're round the back, madam. There's a lovely cafe and a beautiful roof garden. And <laughs> I mean, and that's, that's of course, that's great. I mean, I think they're a little bit, they can maybe be a bit intimidating to go and get a book out of a library like that, maybe. I don't know. I felt a bit sort of... I go to the British Library um, and work sometimes and... Um, Yes, it took me a while to feel like it would be okay to actually ask for a book. (laughs) Now, the the great use of the telephone box, the reuse of a telephone box in a village, that everybody puts their spare books in there and you use it as a sort of a a collecting and depositing place. It's a great idea, that. I agree. And our our local tube station now actually has a little um, bookshelf where you would come and put books down or take books away if you wanted to. And Mm. um, it's fantastic. Why not? Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, you're very lucky, I think, to have developed a love of reading books so young, really. I mean, we were talking about our grandchildren, and I have grandchildren that are now at the point of reading, and two of them have absolutely fallen in love with it. They love to be able to read and they love to be able to write. All the time they're trying to write things, that wonderful thing of of their own spelling. Mm -hmm. But that thing of reading, of reading a book, and the speed with which they go from and it 
was to fluently reading. It's yeah. a it's a fantastic thing, isn't it? Yes, it is amazing. And because we were away a lot as children, um, often my sister and I would be the only children you know, at work or on the set or whatever. And um, so books were great, great companions. And and as I said, I was at this experimental school. We didn't have lessons or classes or anything. So I didn't really have any formal education, but I could read. And um, so as long as I had a book with me, it was always a friend. And mm. this transport to, you know, to all these other worlds that you got to learn about. And um experience through through the through the author and the story which uh you know i still absolutely love yeah and now writing your own yes eventually (laughs) i used to write (laughs) stories for my sister when we were away if we'd run out of books and uh now yeah i went back to school as an adult um and when I was doing a long-running television series i did an ou degree um and then i did an ma and then i've just finished my my PhD. And as part of my PhD, I, I was um, able to write a novel. And so that came out last year. And, uh, and, and now I'm just about finishing my second one. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> so do you think you're going to go from long-listed <laughs> but, but, I mean, I'll explain that. I mean, you, was, you were long-listed for the Booker Prize, which I think is yeah. an extraordinary achievement for the first novel. Well, it's brilliant. Thank you. Yeah, it was very exciting, and I and I was very lucky. Um, as with all these things, there's a great deal of luck involved. But um, uh, yeah, it, it, that was great, and also it was really encouraging. Just from the point of view of my book, was quite experimental, and um, a lot of people said to me when I was writing it, um, "We don't quite understand where this is going to go in the bookshop. It's not a genre that we recognise." Now, my wife, my wife explained it to me. Yes. Uh, as I think I told you, I haven't read your book, but my <laughs> wife has. I rely on her for most things in life. Uh, and she said that it's it's like a lot of short stories, mm. but they're linked and yes. there's a theme through them. Is that yeah. right? Yes, that's so right. She has read it. Yes, she has read it. You get the same um, family throughout the the book, but um, each chapter is seen from a different point of view in the family. And one of the chapters is from the point of view of an aunt <laughs> who is living in one of the other characters' brains. So um, yes, it's it's quite odd, <laughs> <laughs> but I hope coherent. But it was difficult when it was first being sent out. Um, a lot of publishers did say, you know, we, we like it, but we don't know what to do with it. We don't know what, mm. how we would um, sell it. Or, and I still haven't got an elevator pitch for it. So I do understand the issue. <laughs> yeah. um, so to be recognised on a long list like that, obviously, which is an incredible honour, but mm. um, just the fact that it did quite well and people were nice in reviews and things just makes you feel like, oh, it's quite liberating. It's okay. I don't have to just write this one thing. I can... I can write different things that come into my head and people on the whole will go with you, which yeah. is amazing. Yeah, I think so. I think that's true of many things in life. In fact, if you do the thing that interests you, mm. 
you will find other people who are interested in it. Yeah. Even though it may seem a very solitary thing. Yeah. So I think that's true in uh, I've done mostly comedy in my career and it seems to me that whenever somebody comes along who's who everybody suddenly gets very excited about, it's because they're doing exactly what they think is funny. Yes. And they may have done it in many rooms in front of people where most of the audience didn't think it was funny. <laughs> and yet they gather around them, you know, these people. So, you know, Fleabag, League of Gentlemen, those yes, sort of yes, things. Yes. They did them because they liked them. Yes. So it's their, it's, that's the thing, isn't it, that's interesting. It's, it's their voice and their expression of their ideas in, in whatever form mm. um, that seems like it's just a one-person thing. But actually, of course... There are lots of other people out there who will enjoy and appreciate that, but but yeah. they've never seen it before or heard it before. Yeah, no, or even realise that that was what they were going to like. Exactly, I think that's the wonderful thing when when you present something to somebody, and they think, oh, you know, this is what I've been looking for. Yeah, yeah, this is it. It's great. So I'm going to ask you because my brother, my older brother, is very keen. Uh, that we start a revolution and change the entire education system in this country. Yes. From the very formal sort of Victorian examination, everybody studying every subject, mm -hmm. to a system whereby it's sort of child-led and it's if a child is good at something or keen on something, then you let them do that. Mm -hmm. And all the other things will follow as a result. Yeah. So is that how you were taught as a child and did it work? Well, um, there was a there was a, a system like that because it was Montessori based, um, so which is very child centred. And yes, you you lead the thing that you want to do, and however many times you want to do it, you know, ch some children like to repeat an exercise over and over and over again. You were allowed to do that. So if you just wanted to pour water from one jug to another jug all day long, you could do that mm. until you were satisfied with that action, which is great. Um, it was a little bit of a big experiment because the age range was big. We were from four to 17, I think. Wow, yeah. Um, and obviously no exams or anything like that, but also no tables or chairs or um, classrooms. <laughs> <laughs> and all, lots of different abilities, which was amazing. I, I really am a big fan of integrated education. So there were there were children who were of all different abilities and had different challenges. So that was great, but um, it probably could have done with a little bit of structure. It was just that it was, they, they were trying all these new things, but possibly trying them all at once. And maybe we could have possibly done with a bit more <laughs> development but I, I totally admire the ideas behind it and I'm so grateful to have had that experience because it did give me a love of learning even though I hadn't learned mm. anything <laughs> <laughs> it did make me want to learn and it did make me understand I guess about um, being an autodidact about that that was fine if you were interested in something go away and learn about it and we're so lucky now because obviously um, not just because of the internet but also, adult education is a thing and part-time education is, is um, so accessible now. Yes. There's nothing to stop you going out and, and learning the things that you want to learn. Well, I think maybe you've answered my question, which is I think my brother may be right, mm. in as much as although you say you weren't actually educated, mm. you had a love of learning. Yeah. And actually, one of the problems, I think, with the, the education system as it is, is that mm. you're sort of expected to study until... Well, 21 maybe, you're 20 when you finish further education. And, and that's sort of, that's where your education stops and then you're going to work. Mm. And in fact, 
the desire to continue to keep learning mm. through your life is a great thing to have been taught. Absolutely, yeah, and uh, and uh, this idea that yes, that you that you can do it, that you that if, but also. I mean, our lives are different now, aren't they? We don't we don't have this sort of same job for life situation so much anymore. And you know, touch wood, this life expectancy is longer, and there's there's a lot more. I think of a feeling of it doesn't have to be done exactly like that anymore. And uh, obviously, I did mine totally back to front, um, <laughs> <laughs> but I do love to uh, talk to people um, who are thinking about doing one thing and the other and say, well, you don't have to choose, you know, you can, you can do this for now, but you could also keep studying. There's just so many different approaches that you can have now. And I absolutely agree with your brother. Did you say your brother or your brother-in-law? My brother, my older brother, yes. Is he a teacher? He's not a teacher, no. He was a, he was a graphic designer, and then he stopped being a graphic designer. Then he started a farm in uh, just outside Lowestoft where people with special needs and, uh, and all sorts of problems come and work, and it helps them. So he's done some extraordinary things in his life. Yeah. The idea now that he wants to completely change the <laughs> education system in this country before he dies, I think is a possibly a bit bold. Well, I definitely think that uh, there are many more interesting ways than the, the sort of box ticking. And, and it's so frustrating for teachers as well. I completely agree. And maybe we need more libraries like the library on the Essex Road. <laughs> Absolutely. And there's that Mr. Ben feeling about the library, about going in and um, becoming something else for, for an hour while you're in, in reading that book, you know. Oh, God, what a brilliant way to describe it. So <laughs> no wonder you've become a writer. That's it. The Mr. Ben attitude. Yeah. Now, I'm sure people know what Mr. Ben is. They must do. It's a fancy dress shop, isn't it? Yeah. He gets a costume and then he goes into that world. And um, if anybody listening hasn't ever seen an episode, I highly recommend it. Yes, me too. But that's a lovely way to look at books, isn't it? That you're going to walk in there and, and jump into this other world. Yes. Fantastic. OK, right. That library goes into the time capsule as your second item. Thank you. That's two. So we've got uh, three more to go. OK, it's time for a short break for some adverts. We'll be back very soon. 
Welcome back. Right, let's find out what else Sophie Ward would like to put in her time capsule. So I don't know if, I, if I'm if i doing too many places, you must say, because the other place that was a really transformative thing for me in my life is the Citizens Theatre in Glasgow. Ah, yes. Or the Glasgow Sits, the Sits, as it's known. Yeah. And I wasn't there at the sort of great height of its experimentation when it sort of burst onto the scene with what they call the triumvirate of directors. Mm. These three guys who decided that they were going to have this very European-style theatre in the Gorbals in Glasgow. And they totally transformed, I think, the idea of what a a local theatre could be. This was in the 70s. Now, I didn't get there till the early 90s, so they'd already done the most extraordinary things and had the most extraordinary actors pass through their doors. Nevertheless, when I got there, it was still a great place of experimentation and they were still running it. And what was brilliant was they had three spaces, like a traditional Victorian theatre and then two studio spaces. And then you would have a free preview on a Thursday night. Mm -hmm. So anybody could come and see the show for three. And that was the only preview you got. (laughs) You open the next night and the most expensive ticket was £7. And really for £2, because all kinds of subsidies were allowed, uh, for £2 you could go and see any show in the theatre. And there would be always very different things on. You know, there might be a comedy on in one thing, something really modern and naked in another place and uh, a, a sort of extraordinary European masterpiece in another. And you you could just choose which one you wanted to go and see, like going to the local multiplex, you know, you just turn <laughs> up with your two quid. So it meant that everybody in the city went there. So your cab dri- if you got in a cab, the cab driver had been to see Hamlet there the week before and wasn't sure about the nudity but had lots of things to say. And then then there'd be, you know, everywhere you went, people had been to see a show there. And um, it was just really felt like what my dream of what theatre, you know, people, I miss the days of old repertory theatres where you would train as an actor. I just missed that, really. And it was one of the few places there in the 90s that was still making its own shows, that had its own workshop that had its own costume department and um, was not just a receiving house for touring productions, but was actually making its own theatre. And it was a bit terrifying uh, <laughs> because they were great minds, the guys who were running it, um, Philip Prowse and Giles Havigill and Robert David MacDonald were the three um, directors and, and writers and designers who were running it. And they had this extraordinary reputation. I was doing a TV thing just before I went up there for my first play and several people told me I should book my place into the lunatic asylum because I would be there by the time I'd finished. (laughs) It did have that reputation and it was intimidating. And there was um, a canteen backstage, which is also quite unusual. So you'd rehearse in in those days quite dilapidated rehearsal rooms and then you'd all go to the canteen so there was a great collaborative feeling and there was no like hierarchy in the programme. Everybody was credited in um, alphabetical order. Whatever you did in the theatre building, you were all in the programme. And it, it just felt like you were doing what you should be doing as an actor. Mm-hmm. I had that moment in my career where 
that was one way that I could have gone. Mm-hmm. And the other way was well, quite easy money through the world of comedy and just doing those sort of things. Mm-hmm. And I jumped the way that I jumped. But I do regret not performing at those places. And in fact, I was in Glasgow once doing a tour and we were doing Amadeus. And the actress Helen Baxendale was was oh, in yeah. the company. It was her first professional job, I think. She was very lovely and we were talking about it. And she said, I'd love to work at the Glasgow Sits. Mm-hmm. I'm good at giving advice, not good at taking my own. I said, well, just go along there and knock on the door mm-hmm. and say, I want to work here. If you'd see me, I'd be delighted. Mm-hmm. And she did, and they did. <laughs> and and right. I afterwards thought, well, why didn't I do that, you idiot? <laughs> well, yes, well, that's very, it was very good advice. That's amazing. And, yeah, they, they did have a, a very interesting open-door policy, I think. Mm-hmm. They were interested in finding people... Um, they weren't good at rejection. I don't think they were very good. If anybody ever said no, I don't think you ever got asked back. That was that. Mm. <laughs> well, I don't blame them. You know, I mean, if you're setting something like that up, you do expect people to go along with the idea, don't you? To sort of yeah. go, you're not interested in us because we're going to make you rich. You're interested in us <laughs> yeah. because we're going to do great work. And yeah. are you willing to give yeah. us a year of your life, as it were? Yeah. Yeah, I, so I was. I mean, it was such an exciting place to be. And then I went there for... Um, pretty much 10 years. Um, I spent 10 years doing two plays a year there. So I had children by then and they would they would come up, they went to school in Glasgow or, or, or sometimes we had a tutor and, um, uh, yeah. <laughs> God. We, we, had, we had a great time in Glasgow, which is one of my favourite cities. Yes, it's a great place. Mm. Oh, my word. I, know, I didn't realise you'd worked there for that long. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, a couple of times the place would we went to Edinburgh Festival, or there was um, we we did um, an old coward play in London. But most of the time, it was yeah, it was in Glasgow, and you saw there was a great transformation while I was there, which I think is is still evolving that that area. Uh, but yeah, what what an amazing time that was. Mm. I think it's a brilliant thing when you can see the effect of a community theatre mm. within an area. I'm the honorary president of a children's theatre company. And in fact, this podcast uh, supports them called Viva. And they're in Soham, which is only a small town near Ely. And basically, one young man decided that he was going to start a children's theatre company. Mm-hmm. And it's now grown to this extraordinary thing where they've just finished, or they're just about to finish, building their own theatre. And they've raised all the money themselves. And they've got hundreds of children involved in it. And the effect on the community, Mm. is amazing, I think. So a theatre that where everybody goes, you just go because it's part of the community and you're proud of it. It's a brilliant thing and I think it's it's been very disappointing the last year or so, the lack of support there's been for those sort of things when, in fact, it's not just about a bunch of poncy actors jumping about (laughs) and taking their clothes off. Sadly, that's what it should be. (laughs) But no, and also, but for children and all kinds of people from all walks of life, the theatre is often the the heart of a community. And I I, I tour a lot as an actor and we do have an incredible number of theatres, big, beautiful theatres in our towns and cities around the UK. I think quite exceptional in the world how Mm. many there are in the UK. But And you see how they are offering things to the community. Oh, they, they do classes and, um, you know, workshops and Q&As and that they are so much part of everybody's everyday life of a lot of people's. It's not just about the shows. 
But also with the children's theatre thing, I mean, I saw it with Anna Shares, what what a life-changing experience it was for kids to be able to go somewhere Mm. and express themselves in a safe space, in a safe environment, and all the incredible stories they have to tell. And not just about them then going on to become actors, the idea that everybody... Very much not that. It's it's about them learning about themselves and, and developing a sense of confidence that they may not have gained in another way. Standing up and pretending to be someone else on a stage or singing on a stage and those sort of things in front of your peers and your friends and your family, and to do it. And at the end of it, you see these children, the confidence that's thrust into them because of it is extraordinary. It's an amazing thing to watch. Well, I'm really thinking that that this year has made people reflect a lot on the value of those spaces and and what you can give and get from them. And I think... Think my belief is that they will bounce back. Mm, me too. But also young people. I'm very aware at the age that I am, and and I'm not sure that I'm not sure that everybody my age is aware of this. But we ought to be aware uh, of how fortunate we've been that so many, well, all nearly all young people have absolutely sacrificed most of the things that they love doing mm. in order to keep us alive. And it's an amazing thing. And we really need to pay them back now. I so agree with you. Oh, you're going to make me cry. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. But I'm really passionate about it. I I really believe. In fact, I launched into a speech in Marks and Spencer's the other day just because I couldn't hold it back anymore. There was a young girl working there and I said, how's it been for you? And she said, well, I was supposed to do my A-levels. And I said, oh, my God, what you've given up for me and you don't even know me. These reports of, you know, people having raves and things like that. can you blame them? Isn't it extraordinary that it's not all the time? Yeah. The extraordinary thing is that most of them didn't. They sat at home and kept themselves away in order to yeah. keep us safe. It's an extraordinary thing. I think if we're looking at the great positive that's come out of this, it's to realise how how much these, these people care, how lovely they are. Yeah, well, I, I really hope that there's a sort of um, a way of that being acknowledged. Um mm. Well, I think there is. What we have to do is we have to provide them with affordable accommodation. We have to provide them with free education. Oh, God, yes. Sorry. Oh, Mike, you caught me there, mate. <laughs> there we are. Oh, Lord. Uh, right, we shall joyously take the marvellous <laughs> Glasgow Citizens Theatre Company and all its great history and put it into the time capsule. Wonderful. So we've got two more things to put in, Sophie. Um, well... So the fourth thing is a natural thing. <laughs> I'm going to put my wedding ring in the time capsule, <laughs> chiefly because I am unable to keep hold of it myself. <laughs> the last time I saw my wedding ring, um, I believe I handed it over to a Bulgarian taxi driver. <laughs> <laughs> Because, as you know, on set, you're not allowed to, you you know, you don't wear personal Mm. effects. You take off your wedding ring. And I'd put it, I thought very carefully, in my purse. And then that night, at the end of the shooting day, the taxi driver dropped me back at the hotel and I scooped all the change I had (laughs) out of my purse, (laughs) in which was my wedding ring. Yes. Now, the thing about that wedding ring is it had been through three weddings <laughs> because my wife and I had to get married three times. 
the first time we got married, it wasn't even a thing. No. We sort of made it up. It was 2000 and there had obviously throughout history it wasn't the first, we weren't the first same sex couple to ever have a commitment ceremony but no. i'd never been to one uh, and um we didn't really know what we were doing and it wasn't legal and uh, nobody who was coming to the party knew what we were doing and it just seemed really important because when we'd got together there was a uh what i like to call a bit of a fuss <laughs> and um There'd been a lot of negative stuff about it in the press and things. People were very worried and da, 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 da. And now we'd been together for three years and the world hadn't fallen apart and we were still very happy. And I just wanted to have a celebration and show that it was okay. We were okay. Our family was okay. Uh, and so we invited about 100 people and we tried to think about how we, we got a, a Unitarian minister they were fine with same-sex unions and he was going to give us a blessing and uh, and a certificate and everything. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so we, we had this lovely day. Oh, gosh, it was, it was um, very nerve-wracking. And um, all along my wife kept saying, my wife, my, who is now my wife, but my wife-to-be, Renee, kept saying, oh, it's going to be a great party and we're going to... Maybe we should raffle a car. And I was like, oh, babe, no, because, like, we're actually getting married. And it's, you know, we have to really, really, it's like, I was being really serious about it. And she kept thinking about all the fun stuff we could do. And then about three days before we were going to get married, she she absolutely lost it. And suddenly it all sunk in. <laughs> and everyone was coming. People were flying from America because Renee's family were all in America and they were coming over. And she suddenly started to get really nervous to the point where uh, on the morning of the ceremony, she decided she was going to dye her hair platinum blonde about an hour before the service. <laughs> all her family hairdressers. So we all know it takes longer than an hour. Anyway, by the time we did get married, everybody was quite drunk because we were quite late. <laughs> and she was very nervous. And this lovely minister had to take her by the hand and say, it's going to be OK. It's all going to be OK. And we went down the aisle. My family were there. Renee's family were there. It was lovely. But it was, um, nobody really knew what to expect. You know, they were quite taken aback by it, I think. <laughs> anyway, it was a, that was what I think of as our wedding day that was the first time I put that wedding ring on which I really hope that Bulgarian taxi driver is enjoying oh. it was a very simple ring but I'm I mean I I hope that <laughs> it didn't just get thrown away oh no if you're going through your change and you find somebody's wedding ring mm. and you know where it came from yes you turn the car around and go back to the hotel don't you well, I don't know. I mean, that's the problem. Maybe he didn't ever notice it. It is, was very slim. It wasn't It wasn't a, a sort of chunky wedding ring or anything. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so somehow it has to make its way to the time capsule because then it had to go through the second wedding when um, civil unions were passed. So civil partnerships, we were allowed to have a civil partnership. So we had that in 2010. And then, amazing, and by 2014, we were allowed to get married. So we had a third ceremony. <laughs> People were very sweet <laughs> about still celebrating. Are we coming again? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. So thrice married, but no wedding ring. So, 
if it could find its way from Sophia to Sophie's time capsule, that would be amazing. It's there. It's in there. Okay. And you know it's safe now. <laughs> it's in there in its own little box, waiting. Wonderful. What extraordinary 10 years, that is, yeah. of turning around of people's, well, rather delayed attitude. Yes. Oh, OK, you can get married. Yes. Oh, thanks very much. <laughs> I know. I mean, it did sort of, it's taken so much of human history to get there. And then it suddenly seemed, I think, to a lot of people quite quick, you know, like attitudes mm. changed quite quickly. And and Ian, when we had our first ceremony, um, I, I think even I never really believed that we would actually be allowed to get married one day. And things like going through the family channel at airports and things you know and that had all been really difficult just even being together because of mm. green cards and you know whether or not you're allowed to be together and things so what's extraordinary is that there was an objection to it for so long mm. yes they were worried that it would undermine something that obviously felt very fundamental to them and i, I think mm-hmm. even most of those people who who had those concerns i think now would agree that actually it hasn't done that and it's made so many people happy actually mm. um yes and we can just get on with our lives yes God, i've been to some fantastic weddings well yes like we still haven't done the sort of vegas chapel elvis impersonator situation which is now legal which is amazing so i think maybe we'll do that one day <laughs> yeah fantastic uh, there we are. Okay, so that's your wedding ring into the time capsule. Now we've got one final thing, and this is really supposed to be something that you you'd like to put in there because you want to get rid of it. Mike, I don't have anything. I've just got a number five on these, my piece of paper here, and it's just a complete blank. But I mean, obviously, there are so many things that would go in there. But I mean, the most obvious one, which is bloody COVID. Uh, if I might suggest you, because I remember the fuss that was made about your announcement, mm. the fuss that was made in the world, mm. and I could never understand it. I couldn't understand what people were worried about or what people were objecting to. Mm. One, you were saying, this is who I am. Mm. And secondly, I couldn't see the harm in it. What do you think? I also think that it's very hard for people to embrace new freedoms. You know, life is so complicated and so difficult and all of us are navigating this sort of myriad of ethical, moral, physical decisions every day about mm-hmm. the best way to live and the best person to be and how to be and what it means and who we are and all those things. That's even if we're lucky enough to have the headspace to do that because you can't do that because, you know, the thing that you're doing to survive is taking up all your day. Mm. So there's so many challenges for people, but there is often some sort of thing that's set uh, about what life is and how people should be. And then along comes a a whole new thought, a, a whole new way of life. And I think that is very hard for most of us to accept whatever that might be. And, you know, sometimes it might be that a certain community in a country wants to have a border that they haven't been allowed to have before and establish themselves as a country. And in a way, maybe uh, me falling in love with Renee and wanting to get married, it was us sort of saying, well, this is our country. Um, (laughs) You know, we have this, we're entitled to this border. Mm. Um, But I think there are a lot of things like that in life that are 
difficult it's difficult for us it's not it's not so much that you're set in your ways it's just that there's such a life is so hard and um you know when something new comes along it is a it's a challenge to to change your point of view and the way you look at life and some things are quite fundamental and um you know marriage is a big part of society isn't it it's a big part of how we arrange and organize things i know every different mm. community and culture does it in its own special way but it's quite set and then oh well what happens then what's going to happen i can understand why people would feel worried about that and threatened by it and, and threatened and just sort of fearful really i mean most of these mm. things that when we get Upset about things because we're fearful, isn't it? Yes. And then generally, once you've seen it happen and you've seen the consequences of it, they're minor, you know, apart from those people who wanted to do that are now happy that they've done it. Yes. Well, with your permission, I will put that sort of uncertainty, that fear in life, Mm. not just for you, but for all of us, where we're scared of change, where we're scared of things not being what we know. Yes. Let's put that in the time capsule and and clear the world of it. And then hopefully it'll all become a much nicer place. Well, I'd love to be able to do that, Mike. I'm so pleased that you have this time capsule. I am an extraordinary man. There's no doubt about it. (laughs) I have magical powers. (laughs) (laughs) I think you do. Unfortunately, none of them have ever been demonstrated in any sort of acting ability. Well, that is not (laughs) true, as anybody who can hear your dulcet tones at this very moment knows. Oh, thank you very much. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, just the five syllables this time, and my guest, Sophie Ward. Please subscribe to this podcast on Acast or wherever you usually get your podcasts. And when you do, we'd really appreciate it if you would rate us and leave a review. Thanks. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter, although we spend much more time on Twitter than anywhere else. In fact, just search for me or my time capsule. The theme tune written by Pastor P's music is available to download or stream on Spotify. Our producer was John Fenton Stevens, and this was a cast-off production. I hope you find the time to listen again soon. But in the meantime, I'm off to register as a candidate for the next election, where I will be fighting for the rights of young people. Oh, and obviously making the use of the word less when you mean fewer, a reason for bringing back the birch. Yes, <laughs> what an old softy I am. <laughs> Do you know, I don't even mind if that means that we get less subscribers. Ow! Ow! Oh! God, hurt. I'm sorry, fewer subscribers. Oh, Jesus. Bye. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. 
and that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. 